0: Thank you, guys. Baby dedication is the best. Aren't y'all glad we serve a God who believes in and fosters community like that? I'm so grateful. Good morning, you guys. It's good to see you guys. Mm. is, this, is gr- Growing up and being a part of a church like this, it just is it, whenever you're up here and you get to see everybody all at the same time, it's like, Oh yeah, hey. Like getting to see everybody all. Hey dude. (laughs) Sorry. This is what happens. You get to see. I would have said the same thing, but I saw you beforehand. I was, oh my gosh, they're all here. It's good to see you all this morning. Sorry, this is my opportunity to get everybody's undivided attention and see everybody, my whole family, all at the same time. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Levi. I serve here as the student pastor of Fellowship Nashville. And uh, we made it through the snow. We made it through all of the uh, the snowpocalypse, and so I am very grateful, and I'm, I'm glad to welcome you guys back to Habakkuk. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a dad now, so I can, I can do dad jokes, I think. Um, since it's been a minute, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in uh, Habakkuk, I wanted to give you all a quick uh, context refresher. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 4 says... Can I fix your mic? Please fix my mic. No, go for it. I want you to sound good. Am I echoey? Not anymore. Okay. Thank you, Jacob. Whoa. There you go. Jacob's the glue that holds his church together, let me tell you. Uh, where was I? What was I saying? Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. We good, Jacob? It sound good? Yeah? Beautiful. For context, the kingdom of Judah has once again rebelled against God, and the prophet Habakkuk is crying out to God to do something about it. It's cool in this narrative because God actually responds to Habakkuk and says that he will bring judgment on Judah, but that he's going to use the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans uh, as a tool to bring about that judgment. The Chaldeans, another name for the Chaldeans is the Babylonians. That's their more common name. It's the same group of people, just a different name for those people. God says that he's going to use Babylon as a tool to bring justice on Judah. And when Habakkuk hears this, he's rightfully surprised and rightfully shocked by God's response, considering Babylon is significantly, by our earthly standards, way more evil, way more destructive, way more abusive than Judah was at this time. But God responds to Habakkuk in his shock with a promise that Babylon will also face judgment for their sin. So this morning, we're going to be walking through this section called uh, the five woes. It's uh, five specific examples of uh, systemic uh, injustice that uh, was perpetrated by Babylon. And then when we look at those five woes, it's going to be followed by five... uh, specific examples of punishment that awaits Babylon because of what they've done. In this passage, uh, we're going to see a, uh, over and over again how seriously God takes sin, how passionately God demands justice, and how in the end, all corrupt peoples will be held accountable for their actions. So with that, if y'all could turn with me to uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to be uh, verses 6 through 20. Uh, we'll have it on the screen behind me as well if you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, find me afterwards. I have a ton in my office. I'll just give you one. Um, as we're walking through this passage uh, and we, we look at these five woes, what we're going to do is uh, after each one, I'll, I'll, I'll give a summary of the woe kind of in our own words. And then at the end, I'll give a summary of uh, the general idea that I kind of want us to walk away with. So uh, yeah, Habakkuk chapter two. Uh, before we dive into the text, would y'all pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for another day to know you, for another day to learn more about you, God. I pray that as we dive into this amazing minor prophet, that you give us open minds and open hearts to experience and know what you want us to this morning. Lord, we love you because you loved us first. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, let's dive in. Verse six. Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Babylon will not only be mocked and scoffed at by the people they abused, but way more is coming around the corner. Through pillaging and conquest or unjust practices, the Babylonians seized wealth and heaped up resources that were not theirs. The specific practice mentioned in this particular verse is a practice called uh, uh, loading up with pledges. If you're a finance person, you probably already know what that is. But in short, it's, if you owed money to someone, you would give uh, an item of yours as collateral, uh, to to just ensure that you're like I'm 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 good to pay this back I'm I'm, I'm I know that I'm in debt but I, I have every intent of giving you your money back uh, in scripture uh, more most often we see the collateral repre- collateral represented as a cloak uh, sometimes cattle just a physical object that they would give to their debtor um, the person that they owed. Um, we don't have enough time to dive into detail, but uh, in Exodus chapter 22 and Deuteronomy chapter 24, the Lord specifically uh, directs His people on how to interact with uh, your neighbors that you are inde- that uh, your neighbors who are indebted to you. And the vast majority of the time that a pledge is mentioned in Scripture, the pledge towards a debt, it's about it speaks about the wealthy taking advantage of the poor. And so in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24, we see specific examples and specific commands in God's law of how to interact with the poor in your community. A couple of the things that they mention, don't act like moneylenders. We're not gouging money. We're not trying to take every bit of, of, of financial anything from our neighbors. Don't collect interest on debts to the poor. If, you, if the poor are indebted to you, The Lord says that you should not collect interest. And then also, in regards to a pledge, that you are to return your cloak that you have gotten as a pledge back to your neighbor so that they have something to sleep on. So again, if the poor, if all they have is the cloak on their back and it's like, this is what I used to sleep on and they give it as collateral, we're supposed to give that back. We want them to have some place to sleep. In this verse, Babylon is characterized as a nation that doesn't care about the financial state of their people. Rather, it loads itself up with pledges, taking advantage of the poor that they have conquered in a desire just to accumulate more wealth. Verse seven and eight. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This leads us to our first woe. Woe number one, woe to those who take advantage of the financially vulnerable. For those who plunder will someday be plundered. Babylon itself is on borrowed time. The wealthy have stolen and, and pillaged their people. The wealthy have, at their, what they've stolen is at best alone to be torn away by other nations that will eventually conquer them. All this wealth that they've accumulated, they're only going to have it for a bit longer because it will be taken away by another nation that's just going to come and take advantage of them. Taking advantage of others, especially the vulnerable, is antithetical to the Christian walk. We as followers of Christ are not supposed to take advantage of people, especially the vulnerable, and in this case that example would be the poor. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. When we study scripture, uh one thing that I, I, I heard all the time growing up, I hear it all the time in seminary, I'm sure y'all do too, is the thing that we need to look out for is repetition. If you see something repeated over and over again to us, that's like, oh, I need to pay attention to this. This is important. That goes for English. The same thing goes for Hebrew. Um, that phrase of uh, woe to him that who gets evil gain, is lit- it's the same word twice it's the verb form, and then the noun form, and then a modifier, the modifier of evil. So literally, it would, it, we could translate it, woe to him who gains gain evilly. It's, this, it's the same phrase, it's this, or not phrase, it's the same word back to back. And when we read that, the author is going, I really want you to pay attention to this. The governmental system of Babylon is taking advantage of the vulnerable only to bolster their own security. The author really wants us to pay attention. And the example they use is is that of an eagle. The, The Babylonians are like an eagle high in their nest. They feel secure, only leaving their nest, only leaving their fortress when prey is within striking distance. Verse 10 and 11. You have desired shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. We'll come back to that word life here in a second. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The injustice that Babylon is actively participating in is so severe that the stolen materials that Babylon is using to build up their kingdom, to build up their their fortresses, are literally crying out to the Lord in this verse. And we don't have enough time to go into that theme of like things crying out to God. But man, it is a, it is a deep, deep, deep well of, the, of inanimate objects crying out to God, like the blood of Cain crying out to God or, or, or God hearing the cries of, of, of his people in Egypt. Like this, the Lord hears the cries of the beams and the rocks that build up this dynasty, build up this empire because of how severe the injustice is. This word life in this verse, the you have forfeited your life, is the same word used in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, when it talks about what awaits people who ambush the innocent. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Same word, lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life same word in Hebrew, again, of its possessors. If y'all have read, it's a, it's a verse I feel like a lot of us might know. Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. That word soul is the same word as all of these examples of life. It's that we've, I think we've talked about it before in here. I know we've talked about it in our student ministry. It's the word nefesh. It's the word nefesh. It means it means we'll translate it life, sometimes we translate it soul, but in essence it's everything that you are, your eternal, whole, living being. It's 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 your the, the entirety of who you are as a as a as a image bearer of God. We see this all over the place in scripture, but definitely here, the biblical authors draw a clear connection between greedy injustice and losing yourself. There is a serious eternal connection there, which leads us to woe number two. Woe to those who use corrupt systems to take from others in the name of security. For when they do this, they forfeit their very soul. Babylon is, is forfeiting the totality of who they are by taking advantage of others just to fortify themselves. They're losing themselves by taking advantage of others. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds his city on iniquity. Woe was proclaimed on nations who raise their cities on a foundation of violence and injustice. And the language in this verse of of building a city leads a lot of scholars to conclude that this verse is also targeting the Babylonian practice of chattel slavery. Verse 15 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk touches on this when he says, he brings all of them up with a hook, he drags them out with his net, he gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad." In their violent conquest and pillaging of other nations, Babylon would gather people like fish in a net to both subdue that nation that they're conquering and to bolster their own workforce. When uh, we, went through, we went through the book of Daniel uh, a while ago, I can't remember even, I, might have, I guess it was earlier last year. Um, actually, it might have even been before that. Regardless, uh, when we intro the study, uh, uh, Pastor Mark, who you saw up here a second ago, gave a really, really good intro to the book of Daniel, and he mentioned uh, all of the when Daniel was enslaved by Babylon, and he talks about all the stuff that Daniel probably went through. Um, we don't have enough time to go into it today, but if you want more detail, uh, you can. I would encourage you to go check that sermon out. Uh, in short, Babylon was notoriously cruel to their captives, like on a on a historic scale. Like Babylon is is known for being an incredibly cruel nation to the people that they capture. God sees that cruelty and pronounces woe on Babylon. Verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? The Lord's tolerance for bloodshed and violence is clearly paper thin. Destruction awaits nations like this, which leads us to woe number three. Woe to those who build their nation upon a foundation of enslavement and violence, for the kingdoms they build with abused people will be decimated. The results of a city that is built on violence is fire and ash. Destruction awaits cities that build their nations on abused people. Babylon's labor is for nothing. And he will or I should say he the Lord will bring down these nations. The Lord will in the end level nations like this. Fire and ashes what awaits. Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There are two verses uh, that as we walk through the five woes that act kind of like act as kind of like, uh, w- the phrase I used is truth checkpoints. Uh, as, we're, as we're kind of combing through all of this talk of, of justice and judgment and violence and abuse, the author puts two verses in this section, these incredible proclamations of, of truth made by the author to anchor us in that truth, to anchor us in the midst of kind of this turmoil. And this is one of them. In, verse, in this verse, in verse 14, Habakkuk is quoting from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 11, verse 9, when Isaiah is describing the messianic kingdom, the kingdom that we're hoping for, that we're longing for, and that the kingdom of Israel was longing for. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth, not might, not might will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk is, in this moment, is, is, is looking forward to the culmination and the completion of all things. When God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and Babylon is brought to rubble, justice will be fully realized and the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth like water covers the sea. When I was... Uh, I, I think it's, uh, I say coincidence, I don't believe in coincidence, but for whatever reason, the Lord has kind of, uh, usually whenever uh, I get an opportunity to be up here, uh, and my students pointed this out of, like a couple months ago, they're like, Levi, every time you teach, it's always on like judgment or like or like uh, uh, suffering or like, oh, it's always like that really bad moment. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know why that is. It just kind of happens that way. And so having a checkpoint like this even for me is really really nice for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the water covers the sea so i want to give like just like a couple seconds just to like take a breath and to rest in that truth checkpoint that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Some pretty graphic language and pretty graphic implications um, in this verse and in this section. Babylon continues to exploit people in their nation by forcing them to consume excess amounts of alcohol in order to take advantage of them. There are allusions to sexual assault and rape in this verse, and they are presented as normal occurrences and normal parts of culture in the Babylonian Empire. The leaders of Babylon sought pleasure even if it meant the abuse of another human. Verse 16 and 17 You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. For Pursuing pleasure at the expense of another's safety and well-being, the Babylonian cups are no longer filled with strong drink but with shame. And the author, the author roots that shame in their uncircumcision, this, this, the Old Testament sign that they were not in covenant with God. So not only is there temporal shame, temporary shame in their exposed nakedness, there's also eternal shame because they are not in right, connected, intimate relationship with the Lord. Which leads us to woe number four. Woe to those who abuse and exploit others for mere pleasure, for the wrath of God will be poured out on them. This is one, I, the problem that I always have when I'm preparing sermons is I always prepare a lot because I can be very verbose and I can be a little rambly. Even that, I didn't have to say verbose and rambly. I could have just said one or the other. (laughs) But this section really hit me God takes the abuse of his image bearers very very seriously There's two woes in a row dedicated to dedicated to it the enslavement of image bearers and the sexual abuse physical abuse of image bearers the wrath of the Lord is poured out on those who abuse others for the for the sake of pleasure They will not receive glory. They will receive shame. Whether that abuse is sexual or emotional, any kind of physical, the Father sees and will bring justice. We're going to keep going. Verse 18 and 19. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies... For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. There's a lot of rep- uh, repeated language over and over and over again. The author is showing just how silly and ridiculous it is when people trust in things that they have made with their own hands or their own mind. And oftentimes, whenever we talk about idols, I feel like, kind of as adults, we like to skip past it. It's something we teach in kids' church all the time. It's like they make golden calves, and that's bad, because that's not really God. But oftentimes, I think we, we, we skip past it as something that, I don't know, that we all kind of already understand. And yet, many people are willing to believe in a higher power, in a God of some kind, as long as that higher power aligns with the way that they view the world. What's kind of cool and kind of funny is oftentimes I think we as Christians look at our, the fact that we believe in God and we see that as unique. It's like, that's what sets us apart. We believe in God. The Babylonians believed in a higher power. Like we, again, they're making idols. They want to believe in something bigger and greater up in the sky somewhere. They desired gods to worship as long as that higher power was something that they could create themselves. As much as we want to categorize the habit of worshiping images as archaic and kind of not something that we have to deal with anymore, even people who call themselves Christians might find themselves worshiping a God contrary to Scripture because it's a God that we've made in our own image. We look at God's Word and we say, I like it, I don't like that part, and so I will take this part out. And then I will lift this version of God, and that's the version I like. A God that I have created in my own image. And I say all that as someone who truly, truly believes that as we're coming through Scripture, you will see stuff that go, and go, this doesn't make sense. Or this makes my tummy hurt. Or this makes my head hurt. Or I don't get it. Or why does it say this? Or why is this word in there? Questions are good. Dialogue is important. We, are a, we, we follow and worship a God of community. Find that community and seek those questions. Talk about it. And rest in the God of all things. He is the one true God. And when we take parts of it and we go, I don't, we're creating a God ourselves. Which leads us to woe number five. Woe to those who trust in and worship the created over the creator, for the Lord is the one who reigns, not lifeless idols. The author makes it very clear how foolish it is when people worship created things and make them their own God, and when they make this own God, that they expect that God to be real and alive. In contrast to carven, lifeless images, we have a living God. A ruling God, which leads us to, I think, my favorite verse in this passage, verse 20. "But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him." This is the, the second, like truth checkpoint, and it, and it bookends the passage, and it kind of acts like a doxology, really, for the whole, this whole section. The whole earth, not just these voiceless idols, are called to silence. The voiceless idols don't have a choice. They're going to be silent. But the entirety of the earth is called to silence before the Lord. What's cool is we, when, we, when we began this book, we see Habakkuk, this prophet, who is coming before the Lord in deep, aching lament. And now that same prophet is anchoring that lament in silent reverence before the enthroned god of creation we are both a people welcome to cry out our laments to our heavenly father come to me all who are weary he welcomes your pain he welcomes your vulnerability and we are called to rest in awe of the lord who rules the lord who is enthroned in his temple I'll, I'll, I want to give y'all another kind of breath to kind of sit in that truth checkpoint. Um, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Again, any, anytime you read, like a, if you're reading scripture and you see like a therefore or a but or something like that, it's like everything before it, it's, it's, we've read a bunch of stuff and then it's like, and now here's what we're anchoring it in. It's like, Abusing image bearers, horrifying assault, worshiping idols, but the Lord rules. But the Lord is enthroned. Let's take a breath and just rest in that truth. I'm going to throw the, the five woes up there on the screen for y'all. Um, this, is, this is just the, the, the woe portion, not the punishment portion, but I wanted y'all to have that as reference as we continue to talk about this. Babylon was such a devastating, abusive, cruel nation in Israel's history, and it was so cruel that it became this literary archetype through the, through the rest of Scripture for any nation who opposed God and opposed Israel. So like a, a couple examples, when we went through First uh, Peter, uh, feels like forever ago, in chapter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to the Roman Empire as Babylon. So like, obviously he, he can't say, oh, I'm in Rome, because obviously he's being persecuted, they're hunting down people. Like he's, he's in hiding, he doesn't want to just share in case the letter gets intercepted, he doesn't want to tell people necessarily where he is, but Babylon becomes code, becomes this kind of this archetype for any nation that is opposed to God, and at that time, the Roman Empire was by far the biggest representation of that. We also have in the book of Revelation it's everywhere, but especially in chapter 14, 16, seventeen, and eighteen, Babylon is the symbol for any worldly evil world systems or evil government that uh, ultimately will be brought to ruin in the end. And as we, as we read and kind of look at these woes uh, behind me, um, we aren't supposed to see them as just Babylon. And it's, it, Babylon is in sight when we're reading Habakkuk, but this is, the woes are, woe to him who heaps up, Woe to him who gets evil gain. Woe to him who builds a town. Woe to him who makes his name. Like, all of this stuff is addressed to woe to, to whoever. It's like, this is so silly, but like, if you tell, if you're, uh, I say if, when you guys are serving in kids' ministry, and I can't wait for y'all to do that. Uh, when, if you see, for whatever reason, if a, if a kiddo grabs some scissors and is running around with scissors, that's a big no-no. You can't do that. And you go up to him and you say, hey, stop running with scissors. You're going to hurt yourself if for whatever reason all the kids hear that and go, oh, that just means he doesn't get to run with scissors, you're going to be like, no, son. You, no one can run with scissors. I want you to keep both of your eyeballs in your face. No running with scissors for anybody. This is the same thing. God is saying, woe to nations who fall under these categories. Babylon is what happens when human systems do what is right in their own eyes. That's generally what I want us to think about. And in the end... Most, if not all nations, major nations, become Babylon. And for those of you who like me, um, I was raised in, uh, again, the South. I I was raised in Tennessee, the belt buckle of the Bible belt, in the South. And you were kind of raised in this culture that taught you to borderline worship your country, borderline worship its history, borderline to worship its systems. This passage should be a wake-up call. Because if you, like me, read those woes and went, wow, I'm pretty sure I've read every single one of those in a history book. We are, this feels like a very, like, hot take. I don't think it's a very hot take. We are literally living in a Babylon. I don't care who's president. I don't care what the Supreme Court looks like. It can look like whatever, whatever side of the political spectrum you want. We are living in a Babylon right now. And in the end, God will hold every Babylon accountable, and he will bring Babylon down. Whether it's like this Babylon, where a nation came in and just mowed it over, or it's in the culmination of all things when God takes all evil and wipes it clean. Babylon will be brought down. And if you, if you didn't hear a single thing that I said today, if you hit woe number two and you just, just conked out, here's the main takeaway that I want y'all to have. I'll have it up on the screen for you guys. God's plan hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord detests injustice and abuse more than we as finite humans can possibly imagine. In the end, our God, the one enthroned in his temple, will bring an end to Babylon. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and welcome uh, the band back up. And uh, I'm going to throw uh, Habakkuk chapter two verse twenty up there one more time. And I think Brett uh, Brett touched on this a little bit uh, this morning in his uh, as we were worshiping. and I thought it was so poignant. Sometimes passages where God promises that He will bring justice and end all pain and 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 everything will be made right is really encouraging. And it and it, and it it really, really is because it's a promise and it will happen. I'd bet my life on that. It will happen. God will make all things new. But sometimes it, all, it doesn't always make us feel better. Like, that's just the reality. And I, again, Brett is so good about pointing that out. Sometimes it doesn't make us feel better. Many of us, like Habakkuk, in chapter one, when we read it earlier, just they want God to act now. In fact, I think we should desire that. We should pray for that. God, let your kingdom come. Let it happen now. And a lot of us are not patient people. I'm one of them. God, I want this to stop now. You know what I'm talking about. The pain that you're thinking about or the injustice or the, the thing happening in this world that you go, why is this happening? God, do something. Again, like Habakkuk in chapter one. God, why does it feel like you're not doing anything? Do something. Do something right now. Earlier this month, my, my uh, daughter, Olivia, uh, who shall be six months and three days, which is just ridiculous, um, she, she, she came home with like her first bout of like real kind of sickness, like fever and cough and sniffles. And just, it was like, and it, and it she, was, she was not happy. And you know, like, like, even if you're not a parent, like, you know that cry like a baby makes where it's just like, it's just pitiful and heartbreaking and it, and it's just like, just tears, just tears streaming. And you just want to curl up on a ball and die. It just hurts your heart so much. And, she just is crying, crying, crying. And, you know, like, I hear her, and I, and I go, and I pick her up, and I just hold her. And, you know, you you got to give your baby a good snuggle to make her feel better. And, she, you know, she kind of slowly calms down. She didn't stop crying. It sounds silly, but it's obviously true. She didn't stop crying because I sat her down, and I reasoned with her and said, Hey, sweetie, you don't have to cry. This sickness is going to stop someday. Like, you're not going to be sick forever, so we don't have to cry. We don't have to be sad. Just stop being sad. I know it hurts, but it's going to stop someday, so let's just be, let's just be okay with it. She calms down because she was with her daddy. She doesn't understand In that moment, anything other than my whole body hurts and my dad is safe, my dad is good, and my dad loves me. That's all she knows. In the presence of suffering, God never tells his children to just get over it. He doesn't. He doesn't just smile more, just be, no, 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 I know you see injustice, we're supposed to be happy because it's all going to work out. He never once says, get over it. And when we cry to him and he picks us up and we anchor our lament as Habakkuk does in our heavenly father, that's good. That's a good thing. our Father, our Heavenly Father is safe, is good, and loves us. Amen. Amen. And if that, quite frankly, if that's all you know about God right now, that's a really, really good place to start. God is safe. God is good, and He loves us. He will bring justice. He will make all things new. I know as Christians that we intellectually understand that. But when you hit that point and you go, it just hurts, God is safe. God is good. And he loves you. And he wants to hold us when we cry. Because sickness sucks. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You all pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I'm so grateful that we both know that you will make all things new, that you will fix the problem of evil, and that you will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And I am so glad that when we are crying because we are sick and we can't see the end, that you hold us, that you are with us, and that you never leave us or forsake us. Lord, thank you for Habakkuk. And I can't wait for next week whenever we get to see the completed work and see just how amazing you are. We love you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.